Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Um, let's uh, pray for the service this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this church and thank you for the way that you've designed your body to function, where we come and we serve one another out of the great variety of spiritual gifts that you have given us. And I pray today as we listen to the words of scripture uh, that you would remind us that, that our identity as children of, of the Most High God is found in the way that we love in the way that we love you and in the way that we love others. And so I pray today, uh, as we fellowship together in your spirit, that you would bind our hearts together uh, with spiritual love and unity. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Sometimes when I'm researching a sermon, uh, I just kind of look at different articles and, and kind of, you know, get some ideas going. And I, I came across this, uh, new, this newspaper article out of the Baptist Press. And the, the headline is a bit lengthy, but I want to read the headline to you, and then I'm going to talk about it. So the headline was this. It said, Patrick Green, the man who threatened to sue a Texas county for placing a nativity scene on the courthouse lawn, has had a shift in perspective, dropped the lawsuit and now plans to move to that county with his wife and cat. That, that's a long headline. You can only get away with that with an online newspaper. Like, that doesn't fly in print, right? But then, I, the, that kind of piqued my interest. I mean, I don't know why they had to put these moving there with his cat, too. I mean, that just is like, okay, he's got a cat, and we know more information about him. But here's the story. So Patrick was a, was a very outspoken atheist uh, cab driver from San Antonio, Texas. And uh, he kind of was, you know, just through some things in his life, he became very combative in that stance. And, and so he would kind of go after churches and Christians who would step outside constitutional laws, he saw it. And so he found the placement of a nativity scene at this courthouse in this one county in Texas to be unconstitutional. And it was kind of his drive in life to use the legal system to get this nativity scene removed from the courthouse lawn. And he was kind of on his way to do that. He had, you know, a lawyer in place, and he was, he was in the process of the lawsuit until he began to lose his eyesight. His uh, retina had started to detach, and, uh, and he was losing his vision. And so with that surgery on the horizon, he had no health insurance, and of course, he was a cab driver, so now he can't drive cabs, so he has no income coming in and deteriorating eyesight. And he realized he had to switch his energies. He dropped the lawsuit because he had to focus on his health. We could leave it there and say, see how the Lord protects? Just joking. Don't do that. <laughs> but what really happened is, is there was a, a lady at a Baptist church who had actually helped put the nativity scene together on the courthouse lawn. It was Jessica Cry. She was a member at Sand Springs Baptist Church. And when she found out that the reason the lawsuit was being dropped was because of, you know, deteriorating health and an eye that needed surgery and the man couldn't afford it... Um, Jessica went to her pastor and asked her pastor, Pastor Eric Graham, if the church could help Patrick out. And Eric said, of course we can help him. He said, we don't have to take time to pray about it. We, we know what the answer is. We've already been given the command by Jesus to do this. And so Jessica then began a, an effort in her church, the church that was sued and the county that was sued, to raise money to support Patrick Green and his wife. And the, the pastor explained to the church that they had an opportunity to show uh, the love of Christ to Patrick and his wife. And uh, so Patrick said, you know, they'd been contacted, they'd been talking, and Patrick said, we heard the church was doing this, we didn't believe we'd actually see any help at all. But two days later, a check for $400 came in the mail. 
And Green said he was totally astonished. He said he kind of then explained that because he was a fairly outspoken atheist, he'd had Christians who refused to pay their cab fare if they talked about religion, and he said he was an atheist, so he had Christians who said they wouldn't give their money to the devil, and so refused to pay him, or he'd had uh, Christians refuse to rent apartments to him because of his outspoken atheist belief, but he said we'd never experienced a Christian be kind to us. He said no Christian at all we've ever met in our lives had ever been nice to us. No Christian has ever done anything for us. And our own families have totally forgotten us. Yet now we see that Christians all around this county are helping us. He said one of the things Jesus said was to love your neighbor as yourself. And these people are acting like real Christians. By the end of the, you know, the, end of the month, they had had enough money come in that they could catch up on all their bills. They could pay all the, the taxes that they owed. And, and he was able to get the eye surgery that he needed. And the Greens said, you know, we kind of expected maybe Christians would help us if we agreed to go to their church or agreed to convert to Christianity. But he said, what we were really surprised about is they just gave us this stuff unconditionally, no strings attached. They just kept sending us money. And Jessica, the lady who started this whole thing, said, well, that's what God's called us to do. She said, it's very difficult and it's kind of against our nature to, number one, love people, and number two, to love them unconditionally. But if we're not loving people, the world's not seeing what Jesus is like. And they're seeing what Patrick has always seen, Christians who are combative and angry. And, you know, if you don't agree, then, we, you know, we can crush you if you try and crush us. And she said, what we want to show is that unconditional love of Christ. And that kind of has changed the entire story. Now, I think that was a pretty cool story. I love that. Because I do think that there are some churches who would say, oh, good, the lawsuit's dropped. See how God has protected us. And leave it there. But this church went a step further and said, oh, the lawsuit's being dropped because he has a poor health condition. We should raise money and help him. No strings attached. What I do think is a little bit unfortunate is that this story is so amazing that it gets written up in a Christian newspaper. Because I actually think that these types of stories should be so commonplace that no Christian newspaper would think it's interesting. I think they should say, well, of course that would happen. That's what Christians do. Because that would be obedience to Jesus who said this, and it's in Luke chapter 6. This is one of my favorite things Jesus said because it's so difficult to do. Luke chapter 6. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good, if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I love that Jesus says that because it challenges me. It's sort of this idea of the, the worse someone treats me, the more I should love them. Does that sound difficult? That's how you know you're on the right track. I can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's the call of Jesus. And one of the things that has astounded historians and sociologists, kind of historical sociologists, is when they look at the rapid growth of the early church. So to be a Christian in in the first few decades after the ascension of Jesus was setting yourself up for persecution, for ridicule, for rejection by family and friends, And then there was always kind of that threat of death hanging over your head. Depending on who the emperor was, depending on who the governor of your region was, there was a threat that you could die for being a Christian. 
And because of these realities, the, the reality of this constant uh, kind of threat of death, the rejection, the, the ridicule, Christianity is kind of a puzzling thing to historians and sociologists because based on the societal pressure around them, they never should have flourished. It should have remained a small, obscure religious group that died out quickly. But instead, the church exploded in growth. Sociologists recognize that early Christianity... Uh, sorry, that slide's a little bit wrong. It's not a 1,000. I'll get there. Uh, early Christianity grew at a rate of approximately 40% per decade. So in 40 AD, there was about 10,000, not 1,000. There was about 10,000 Christians... And then by 350 AD, there was as many as 34 million Christians in the known world. So in 300 years, Christianity went from not even 1% of the Roman Empire to more than half. That's, that's incredible growth rate, especially for a group that was ridiculed and rejected and persecuted. And so we ask, okay, so what explains this growth? Well, one of the reasons is what we looked at last week. The empowerment of the leading of the Holy Spirit was crucial to the growth of the early church. And so we, we say, number one, it's the leading and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the early church that led to this growth. Yet power without love is of no value, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. So in addition to the empowerment and the leading of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament church also practiced the way the way of Jesus by loving the world the way Jesus loved the world. Jesus said to his followers, he said, as I have been sent into the world, so I am sending you into the world. And how was Jesus sent into the world? Well, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus came because of love. And so the early followers of Jesus went into the world as Jesus went into the world with love. With love and with power. What's so interesting is in the first 300 years of church history, we actually have a fairly large amount of writings collected from those, those kind of in the 200s, the 300s, the 100s. We have quite a bit of writings from the early church fathers. What's so interesting about these writings is there's not a lot of instruction, actually no instruction on how to evangelize. There's just nothing in any of the writing that really says this is how you, you evangelize. It's not there, but what you do have are a lot of instructions on how Christians are to live in a world that rejects them. You have a lot of instructions on Christian behavior and, and how Christians are to treat the ones who hate them and persecute them. Here's a, we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson today. So, I like history. Um, so, in an early Christian document known as the Epistle to Diogenetus, written in about 120 to 200 A.D., the author was writing a response to some propaganda that was spreading around the Roman Empire. So people around the Roman Empire have been spreading rumors about Christians. It wasn't just that you had persecution. It's that you had Roman people who believed these bad rumors about Christians. So one of the rumors was they're cannibals because they eat, they eat the body and the blood of Jesus. Like, that's communion. And so there was this rumor that would circulate around the empire. Like, those people are weird. They do these secret meetings. And they even eat babies was one of the rumors because what Christians would do is uh, in the Roman Empire, you'd lay out a baby on the hillside to die if you didn't want it. Well, Christians would go and rescue those children and raise them. But the Romans said they're eating them. So all these weird rumors would go around. And so uh, this letter is written to a man named Diogenetus, and it's, it's written by a man named Ath Athenagoras. And he's trying to defend Christians. He's saying, listen, all these rumors you've heard about us, they're not true. Here's what Christians really are. And so I'm just going to read one section of this letter and how he's describing how Christians are both similar but different from the Romans around them. 
He said, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or custom. Christians don't live in separate cities or live in special towns. They don't speak any special language. They don't even practice any eccentric way of life. Nevertheless, the organization of the Christian community exhibits some features that are remarkable. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. He says, they show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death, they are quickened to life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good that they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. I think my favorite part of this is when Athenagoras writes, for the good that they do. And I think that can be an easily overlooked point for the good that they do. It's it's no small thing to do good, especially in a world where there's so much wrongdoing. And I suppose you could say it was the good that they did that got them into so much trouble because it was and it still is kind of peculiar to do good things for no good reason. And it's also peculiar to do good things to people who hate you and slander you and persecute you. People get suspicious of that. In fact, Athenagoras actually remarks that they suffer stripes, right, whippings, lashings, for the good that they do. They're treated like evildoers. Yet even though they are persecuted for doing good, they keep doing it. I think this is the point that we keep seeing over and over again in the early church is the stronger the persecution, the greater the love. The stronger the persecution, the more insistence the Christian community has to say, love those who hate you, bless those who curse you. As historians and sociologists have examined kind of the odd growth of the early church under persecution and rejection, this is one of the things that that is a key as to why the church grew the way that it grew. It's because of the good that they did. Sociologist Rodney Stark wrote this. He said, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, the chaos, the fear, and the brutality of life in the Greco-Roman world. He said to cities that were filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn apart by ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity, right? There's no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, all are one. And to cities faced with epidemics and fire and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective and free nursing services. That's one of the reasons the early church grew. They insisted on doing good. They would not be prevented from doing good even when they are persecuted for it. I mean, it's, it's just such an interesting thing to think about how much ridicule the early church suffered. One of the ways, uh, as you got later into the Roman era, you know, into the 100s and 200s, one of the interesting things, and I, I'm just going to share this with you, to show you how widespread the ridicule was. If you were a Roman playwright and you wanted to, to let your audience know that someone was an idiot without spelling it out like, this man's an idiot, if you wanted to subtly hint that someone was foolish and stupid, you'd make them a Christian. And then your audience would go, oh, they're an idiot. I get it. I get it. That's the joke. Right? So that's how, much, how widespread the ridicule was. That was kind of the common way to do this. So they were really despised. Yet, despite these rumors and slander and, and the ridicule, When the community saw the good that Christians did, 
Even to those that hated them and despised them, they often wanted to join these Christian communities. So it wasn't simply preaching the gospel with power, it was also living out the gospel with power. And not only the power of signs and wonders, which were there and and necessary, but also the power to love those who hate you. The power to do good to those who hate you. Blessing them and not cursing them. Those were very peculiar things to do. And the church grew rapidly because Christians were so different from the rest of Roman society. Because they took to heart what Jesus would say, love your enemy, do good to them. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone demands you carry their goods one kilometer, carry them two. As the King James translation puts it, Christians are a peculiar people. This is 1 Peter 2.9 in the KJV. It says, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And that's really what was so uh, attractive is, is the peculiarity of the Christians. Once you got past the rumors and the slander and you realized these are people who love. That's what made them so peculiar. And peculiar, of course, means different. Different from everyone else. Set apart from everyone else. There's something different about them. James Bryan Smith writes, why are Christians peculiar, or at least ought to be? He says, because our God is peculiar. The God that we love and serve is extraordinarily different from the gods that the humans designed. When the Greeks and the Romans created their pantheon of gods and goddesses, these gods and goddesses often looked like humans at their worst, right? Their gods would lie and cheat and murder and steal. They'd commit adultery and punish each other out of anger and jealousy. But the God that Jesus revealed was peculiar in light of that. Because this God loved humans so much that he became one of them and died for them. This God forgives when it's not deserved. And if the God of Jesus displays wrath, it is because this God is good and loving and rightly against the sin which so hurts his beloved children. He says, no one could have made that story up. There's nothing like it in all of religious literature. This God is indeed peculiar. So it's not surprising that God's people should also be peculiar in that same way. And so we might be seen as peculiar in many different ways, but the most peculiar trait of Christians is the ability to love everyone as God loves. Again, remember what Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid, and then you will be truly acting as children of the Most High. That's a really interesting thing for Jesus to say, that love of our enemies is what marks us as children of the Most High. Loving those who do not love us is the identifying marker of the children of God. That's what Jesus says. People will know you're children of the Most High when you love your enemies. But that's pretty peculiar behavior. That goes against everything in my nature. I don't want to love my enemies. I don't know about you. In fact, here, I'll put this. I might be able to love people who don't like me, but do something against one of my kids or do something that hurts my wife, you're not going to see a very loving side of me until the Holy Spirit softens me or until my son reminds me. You know, I told him once, if that kid comes near you again, you just punch him in the face. And uh, he's like, Dad, we're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, okay. And, uh, and actually, that kid became one of his best friends. Like, cause, and I was like, wow, it's such a turnaround you've had with this kid who used to you know, kind of get into fights with, and, and you'd cry about it. And he's like, oh, I just kept being kind to him. Now we're best friends. Okay. It's true. It's true what Jesus said, right? So, but it goes against our nature. So we all know that we should say we love our enemies. We might even say that we love our enemies, 
But Jesus links loving those who hate us or persecute us with concrete action. Don't just say you love your enemies. Jesus says, do good to them. So it goes one step further. Like we could all kind of sit here nice and comfortable away from our enemy and say, oh, I love them. I, I just bless them. But Jesus says, do good to them. Lend to them. Love without action is not real love. And as the Apostle Paul instructed to the letter to the Roman church, he said, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. That's really good advice. He goes on, he says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And Peter just echoes this, just so you kind of get it. So Jesus has said it, Paul has said it, Peter is saying it, he says it here, don't repay evil for evil, don't retaliate with insults when people insult you, instead pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. And so that early church in the 100s and the 200s and even into the 300s, persecuted and pressed on every side by troubles, rejected and scorned, lived these teachings out. They loved their enemies and did good to them. They blessed those who hated them and did not curse them. They didn't take revenge and sought to live at peace with everyone. And it was that commitment to live the way Jesus taught and the way the apostles taught that led to this continual and explosive growth of the church. I'll kind of do one more little uh, dive back into history. In 256 AD, the church father Cyprian wrote a letter of encouragement to the Christian people. And he said this, Beloved brethren, We are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Now, about the time that Cyprian wrote these words, a great plague had been sweeping through the Roman Empire. It was killing millions of people. One church father wrote that the plague that that hit Egypt, the killing of the firstborn son, would have been preferable to this plague because at least the firstborn son was only one child dead as opposed to all your children dead. There's millions of people dying of this plague in about 260 AD. And during this plague, the church leader Dionysius in 260 AD wrote another letter praising, again, the conduct of Christians during the plague. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life serenely happy, for they too were infected by the others with this disease, drawing it upon themselves, the sickness of their neighbors, cheerfully accepting their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. Their death in this form, the result of their great piety and faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. So he's basically saying these Christians who went and cared for the sick, who then got sick themselves, placed them with the martyrs. So great was their faith. He goes on, he says, the heathen, the non-Christian, behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away from them and fled even from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they're even dead and treating unburied corpses like dirt, hoping to avoid the spreading contagion. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. 
Now, although the people of the Roman Empire didn't know about viruses or bacteria, they did know that sick people could make healthy people sick, which is why Dionysius says that the non-believers, the heathens, ran away from the sick, even their own loved ones, hoping to escape death. Yet the Christians were peculiar in this. They went and cared for anyone who was sick at great personal risk to their own lives. And we have kind of story after story of this. When plagues came into cities, while the heathen ran out, the Christian ran in. And they picked up the people who were sick and nursed them, either back to health or until they died. And so the Christians were peculiar like this. As Dionysius says, many in curing and nursing for others transferred death onto themselves. And why would Christians do this? Again, these are not people who liked them. These are not their, their neighbors who treated them kindly. These are their neighbors who looked down on them and scorned them and made fun of them and maybe even persecuted them. Well, why would Christians do this? Well, it's because, as Cyprian says, we know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. And one of those great virtues they lived was when Jesus, they took, again, seriously the words of Jesus when he said, when you care for the poor, when you care for the sick, when you feed the hungry, when you pray with those and visit those in prison, you do this to me. They took that to heart. They said, yeah, when we care for the sick, we're caring for Jesus. They like actually believed that. And that's why they did it. Because they said, that's what Jesus has called us to do. And again, these are the people who spread nasty rumors about them, looked down on them and despised them. And the Christians said, okay, we're going to be there for you. We're going to even maybe die to help you. And there was no strings attached to these good works of service. They simply obeyed the command of Jesus to love their neighbors and love their enemies by doing good to them. And it was their actions which were evangelistic. As Christians continued to do good, even amongst those who hated and despised them, people started joining these Christian communities. And so obedience to Jesus in loving others led God to use the lives of his people to see the church grow. These communities of faith were following, again, things like what the Apostle Peter had told them in, in 1 Peter when he said, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your honorable behavior and they'll give honor to God when he judges the world. The lives of Christians are so peculiar that, you know, at first they invited ridicule but as they just kept on living blameless lives of good deeds and blessing, more and more people wanted to belong to these communities. As Nicky Gumbel put it, he said this, unexpected kindness is the most powerful and least costly and most underrated agent of human change. I think that's really true. Just simple acts of kindness, especially to people who don't expect it, and maybe we could say people who don't deserve it, is a powerful agent of human change. And it's this peculiar ability of Christians to love all people, to serve all people, to be respectful and gracious and compassionate. That's why the Apostle Peter says people will eventually ask you about the hope that you have. He says, now who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. What makes people ask about the hope that you have? is the way you love. When I was growing up, I kind of thought it was like, 
I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that, I'm going to kind of remove myself, and I'm going to, you know, and people will then be amazed at my good living, and I'm like, no, they just think you're boring. They don't care, right? They, it doesn't, that's not impactful. What is really impactful is when you love without condition, when you serve without any strings attached, and people go, why would you do that? Well, because God loves me and I love you. It becomes an open door. And so we should live this peculiar life of love, a life in which no one in our community can point a finger and accuse us of wrongdoing. That's such an interesting thing, right? That if people try and speak against us, Peter says, live such good lives that even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, it can't stand. There's no, no accusation can stand because you are so committed to living a respectful and honorable life amongst your unbelieving neighbors. So they can't even point a finger of accusation. If they try, it just doesn't land. And why do we live like this? Well, it's because we're imitating Jesus and obeying the commands of Jesus. James Bryan Smith explains the origins, and this is kind of the way I want to end it today, is, is looking at 1 John. He says, peculiar Christian love is really spelled out for us most clearly in 1 John, so I'll read that. John says, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. And so the ethics, as James Bryan Smith, is very simple. As God is, so his people should be. If we do not love, we must not know God, because God is love. And God's love was revealed among us in the person of Jesus that we might live through him. So we do what Jesus uh, did because we live in Christ. And notice how John stresses something really important that God loved us before we loved God, that God loved a people who did not love or serve him. Paul affirms this in Romans when he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that, John says, is the kind of love we give to one another. You love even those who don't love you. You love even those who, who don't like you. And at the end of the passage, he drives home that point one last time. When we love... God lives in us, and his love completes us. So here's kind of the takeaway. Our peculiar God transforms us into peculiar people, a people who love others even if they do not love us in return. And this peculiar life of love is a compelling witness of our faith, prompting people to ask about the hope that we have, and we answer them with gentleness and respect. And so just my final closing question for you today would be, to whom might the Spirit of God be calling you to love this week? Is there somebody in your life that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind saying, this person needs a tangible display of your love this week? And maybe it's someone that you've been in a, in a bit of an argument or disagreement with. Maybe it's someone that you've had a, a rift with in the past and the Holy Spirit is saying, love them, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. So that's kind of my closing question, but I, I want to leave you with this. I'm going to call the worship team up to get ready, and I just want to encourage you. Um, it's Volunteer Appreciation Sunday, 
And I just want to mention how those volunteers in our church demonstrate their love for us by serving us in so many different ways. And I, I want to just put a plug in here. Our children's ministry volunteers in the preschool rooms, um, we want to give them a bit of a break over the summer, but we want to run our preschool Sunday school rooms. So one of the ways that you could love your brothers and sisters is to sign up. There's a sign up at the back. Sign up for one or two days in the summer that you're available to look after preschool ministry. There's no preparation needed. You just have to come in a little bit early, check the kids in, put on a video, uh, read through the little lesson. Not a lot of prep. Just show up, be present, and give our, our preschool ministry volunteers a break. That would be such a tangible way to love our volunteers. And I'd really appreciate if you could think about doing that. There's a sign-up at the back. You'll see the board. And just if you know you're here for a date, sign up for a room, and that would be fantastic. And if you have any questions, Donna would be happy to answer them. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would increase our capacity to love. I pray that we would understand, as Paul says, the width, the height, the depth of your love, though it's too great to understand fully. And I pray that that love would then spill out of us and, and, and allow us to see the world the way you see the world. Let us love the world the way you loved the world. Not being a part of it, not being in it, but here to serve and here to love. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us to the people and the places we need to go to, that we would love well, that we would represent the kingdom of, of God well, and that people would know that God is love because of the way we love. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.